class settle down, find your seats. Class is back in session. Hello, class. This is Teaching Topeka, and I'm your host, Rafael Garcia. Now, don't get too comfortable because we've got a special treat today, but first we'll need to leave the classroom for it. We'll be starting off our lesson with a trip to the library. Well, maybe not quite the library, but to a second grade classroom at Whitson Elementary School here in Topeka, where Miss Alicia Schwinn, the school's media specialist, or a fancy phrase for librarian, is giving a special lesson and reading The Luckiest Leprechaun. Let's listen in real quick. Oh, show Get lost, I shouted. The dog didn't budge. Shaking her head, she said, I feel terrible. I've got to make this up to you. I'll fix your house. I'll be your guard dog. I don't need a now, guard dog. Now, it's hard to see, but at the back of the class, Miss Schwinn has brought a special book bus, or a cart loaded up with books she's delivering to the school's kids in their classrooms. Because even though the students are back in school, some COVID-19 restrictions still apply, like limits on shared spaces like the library. So the kids really haven't gotten to go to the school library this year. But that's not a problem, Ms. Schwinn tells me. She's just as happy to bring the stories to the kids. And in reading to the kids, she's also happy making a goof of herself, if it'll make the story more interesting for them. It's not anything they really teach you in teacher or librarian school, but it is something she's picked up as a mom. I think definitely the inflection and the way that you choose to read a book is going to either bore a child or it can definitely, um, you know, keep them intrigued and um, excited to listen. And so, you know, um, I don't have any problem making a goof of myself or for the sake of kids, you know, like adults, another story, but for kids, I'll do about anything. And in bringing the stories to the kids, she's bringing something that was maybe a loss for some of them as they spent months at home. You know, books take us places where when we have to stay in one place, they take us to other places. Um, you know, we, we were stuck at home for so long because of, you know, COVID and just trying to keep people safe that it gave um, stories, gave the kids the opportunity to at least, you know, take their mind elsewhere other than having to be kind of stuck in the trenches of what was going on around them. But while Whitson made special efforts to host bookmobiles this past year and otherwise get books into kids' hands... Not all kids had that luxury. After the break, we'll have Dr. Philip Nell, a K-State Distinguished Professor and an expert in children's literature, will chat about the pandemic's effect on children's books, the recent catastrophe in the children's literature world, and what the implications of those events might be for kids and their parents as they pick and choose what to read. Let's go real quick to the Capital Journal's India Yarborough, She's going to tell us a little bit about her podcast on all things business here in the capital city. Stay with us on Teaching Topeka. Hi, folks. I'm India Yarbrough, host of the Capital Journal podcast, It's Your Business. On the show, I sit down with nonprofit leaders, small business owners, local entrepreneurs, and more for conversations about Topeka's growth and development. New episodes of It's Your Business are released every other Wednesday, and you can find us on your preferred streaming platform. Whether you're a business buff or just wanting to learn more about the capital city of Kansas, this show is for you. So what are you waiting for? Go check it out. Now, before we start, I've got to ask Dr. No, what's your favorite kids book? It's it's easy and impossible because I have many favorites. Again, this is Dr. Philip Nell, a children's literature professor at K-State, where he's taught since 2000. He's head of the children's literature program, and he is perhaps most famous for his book, Was the Cat in Hat Black?, which examines the hidden racism and need for greater diversity in children's books. So I could say that my favorite children's book as a child was 
Harold and the Purple Crayon, in which a small boy draws an entire universe with his crayon. Um, and that would be true. But there were so many that I, I loved as a child, in, including Dr. Seuss. I mean, the first book that I could read by myself was Green Eggs and Ham. I, I remember reading that at the age of three and enjoying it so much that when I got to the end, I read, read the book again. So it's also the first book that I, I reread. So, I mean, there are, <laughs> there, there are many books from childhood that, that were favorites and that remains the case. It, it, it almost, the question almost needs a little more direction for me to be able to answer it in any more precise way, but, but I appreciate the question and it is certainly one that I'm, that I'm often um, asked. Do you think that through your career studying the topic in detail, you've gotten a greater appreciation for these children's books? Oh, well, sure. Yeah. I mean, um, in, in the case of those two books, I think I've come to appreciate them more. Um, I did not know when I was a child that Dr. Seuss used only 50 different words to write Green Eggs and Ham, but that was part of what helped me learn to read is that you were getting the same group of words and he was teaching you how to pronounce them via end rhymes. And so, you know, if, if you see a word and that you know it's going to rhyme with the one at the end of the previous line, that helps you learn how to say it aloud. Um, I also didn't notice at the time that it's the, I think, only Seuss book in which the main characters are not clearly gendered. Um, Sam I Am could be Samantha or Samuel. Usually Seuss has a male protagonist. In this case, it's just not, it's not clear, um, which, is, which is something else I really appreciate about it that I didn't notice when I was a kid. And then I wrote a whole biography of Crockett Johnson who wrote Harold and the Purple Crayon. So I could tell you, I could tell you more about that than you'd care to know, but maybe I'll just say this. The entire book is essentially one large continuous drawing that is revealed to us a page at a time, or sometimes a two page spread at a time. And it looks improvised. It looks like Harold's making it up on the spot, but the entire thing had to have been planned in advance, or at least Crockett Johnson had to have that in his head all along because there are no, there's not, nothing is erased. Everything is used and everything is created by Harold. So, so those are two that, I mean, have changed or, or childhood favorites that have changed in a, in a positive way, in the sense that I would really appreciate the, the genius behind them. There are of course, plenty of other books that have changed uh, in a more critical way. But, but in those two particular cases, yeah, I'm, I appreciate the, the, the craft, the intelligence, the genius behind something that seems easy or simple, which, which is really what I think a lot of people miss in children's literature. There's an assumption that because it's for younger readers, it's somehow a, a lesser art form, when in fact it is a much harder art form for that reason. You know, you, you might think of, um, you know, e experimental works like um, Georges Perec's um, uh, The Void, I believe is the English translation of it, where he writes an entire novel and omits a letter. He doesn't use one letter of the alphabet in that whole piece. But that's what you're doing with children's books, right? You are, you are using the tools of storytelling and of art, but you also have an audience 
whose vocabulary is slightly smaller and whose experience um, is not where yours is. And so you, you have to, like a poet, work within particular constraints um, to, to create the art of the story. You don't, you can't just sort of think that, well, you know, um, the kids will read it because of the great reviews, you know? They don't care about the reviews. <laughs> Either you pull them in immediately or you don't. Um, and so it's a very, um, very, very precise and, and, and very difficult kind of writing to do well. Uh, so, so that's, that's something I didn't, I didn't understand when I was a small boy picking up books in the, uh, the children's section of the local library. For kids though, and maybe from your perspective as a professor of children's literature, do you think that the medium has mattered more for kids this past year when they maybe have been stuck at home? Yeah. I mean, I think children's literature always plays an important role in kids' lives because it tells you who's important, who deserves your respect, who does not, what kinds of stories are available to someone like you, if you're represented in the book, and if you're not represented in the book. Um, and since we encounter these books when we are very impressionable, still very much in the process of figuring out who we are, what we believe, they, they influence us in ways that are, that are both profound and, and potentially invisible because they, they influence us without our awareness or necessarily our consent. So I think they always play a big role in children's lives. And sure, during a, a pandemic, if you have books at home, if you are fortunate enough to have parents with the capital to provide you with those books, or if, if you had some from the library before it, it, it closed for however many weeks it had to close, um, yeah, I, I think um, the immersive experience of, say, a picture book or a novel could be really transformative um, in a pandemic because, well, for, for one, you're not forced to interact via a screen. Um, and for two, stories transport us. Um, and I don't mean that in an escapist way necessarily. I just mean they, they move us. We enter the story world and stay there for a while. And that's nice when you are in the midst of, you know, during the past year, we had a pandemic, we had, um, you know, an, an attempted authoritarian takeover of our government, um, a coup, um, you know, the rise of white supremacists, seditionists, um, murder, continuing murder of, of people of color by the police. I mean, there's, there's an, an enormous amount of horror that has happened in the past year. And how do you make sense of your world? How do you find a place in your world? How do you nourish your own soul amidst that? Well, books are one way to do that. And uh, they could be books that address that. And they could be books that have nothing to do with it whatsoever. But I, I think that's that's really important for all of us, but, but especially for kids. So yeah, I, I think children's literature has played, played a big role in the past year and um, 
in that sense and you know and 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 in many senses um in many senses the the movement for diverse books has come into the spotlight which is wonderful um and it's a i mean the we need diverse books movement is wow less than 10 years old but it's the culmination of you know over a century's worth of activists and scholars and writers and artists arguing for more inclusive literature for for young people and so that's certainly that's certainly been a really important role that it has played in the past year as as people try to reckon with america and and the world's uh racist injustices i know it seems books that books that tell the truth you know books that represent fairly and accurately that's that's going to play a role in in shaping how you see and how you understand the world um i i think of all the things i read as a kid that shape what i understand and don't understand and misunderstand <laughs> and how wonderful it would be if a new generation of kids were able to grow up not hampered by all those misunderstandings if they could grow up with less to unlearn than i've had to unlearn i think that would be uh well that would be progress so what is the risk of not having these books you mentioned this idea well more than an idea a truth for too many families that they don't have the capital to have books at home they don't have as easy access to libraries or literature and that can maybe even hurt them this past year. What risks have those families faced? Well, it sets you back, you know? I mean, this is the, childhood is the age where you have this neuroplasticity, where you're learning language and learning reading. And if you're immersed in this rich environment of all kinds of picture books and novels and people who maybe have the time to read to you, which not everybody does, you know, that's gonna stimulate your brain in ways that, you know, don't happen later, you know? It, it's not something you can make up. You know, if, if you miss this period, there is a gap. Um, now, it's not too late to make it up in the sense that it's been a year. It looks like, you know, in the next four or five months or so, we'll arrive at some version of normalcy, but, but there, there will have been a gap if you haven't had that. And that needs to be addressed. That needs to be accounted for. It's not enough to simply say, well, we're all back now. Let's just pick up where we left off or, or where we think we should have left off. Um, and that's, yeah, it's going to re require a lot of work from teachers and in a just society, it would also require some investment from uh, the people who pay those teachers and provide the resources for them and for their students. Uh, whether that will occur in this society is, uh, well, I guess that's, that's <laughs> something we may have to fight for, but, but yeah. Going back to what you said about children's books being an opportunity to include more diverse voices in children's lives, we're about two weeks removed from the catastrophe that was Dr. Seuss Enterprises announcing it would no longer publish some of the books written decades ago by its namesake, Dr. Seuss, or Theodore Geisel, who died in 1991. Now, it's been a minute, 
Can you help any of our listeners who might not be familiar with the topic catch up on exactly what happened? When Dr. Seuss Enterprises made the decision to withdraw six Dr. Seuss books from publication because of their racist imagery, it was taking responsibility for the art that it was putting into the world. It was making the moral decision not to profit off of work that puts racist images and ideas in the world. And that's a, that's a good thing. Um, Seuss is one of America's most beloved authors. By one estimate, one in four American children receives as its first book, a Dr. Seuss book. So he's an author to whom many Americans have a, a deep emotional attachment. And as I said before, the works that we read as children influence us and stay with us and become a part of us in a way that works we read later may not. Um, and, and people understandably have an affectionate relationship with the works that they read when they are becoming who they're going to become. And so if you criticize that work, one response is to feel like um, that the, the criticism of the work is leveled at the person because you're criticizing something they love. And when you criticize something somebody loves, well, that can feel like you're criticizing them. And you're not, of course, criticizing them. And you know what you, what you wanna do is sort of step back and say, what if something I loved as a child might be damaging to children today? You know, How might my relationship with that change? It uh, doesn't mean you have to throw the book away um, or throw the author away, but it does mean you, you should develop a more complicated nostalgia towards that object. And that would be a, a constructive path forward. But the uh, right-wing noise machine decided uh, then this would be a, a wonderful sort of culture war distraction. And they're really good at it, right? They, they, they kind of seized upon that emotion that people had um, or, or potential emotion of being upset about it and then amplified it and, and turned it into what they call cancel culture, you know, and it became about some uh, vast conspiracy to destroy childhood. Actually, one of the, the hate mails I got was headlined something like, um, you know, you're destroying childhood, <laughs> which uh, grants me an enormous amount of power. I'm not sure. Um, but anyway, um, and, and so, yeah, so it became this whole other conversation in which rather than address the racist images in the books or, or raise the question of, are there cultures that we might want to cancel? You know, maybe rape culture would be something we don't want to perpetuate or racist culture might be something we don't want to perpetuate. They never got addressed. Um, and they never really talked about what was the culture that they wanted to preserve? Like what was so valuable about this? You know, it became this way of directing people's anger at liberals and brown people and black people as kind of the, the great uh, perpetrators of evil in the world. Rather than focus on 
actual issues that would change people's lives. Um, and so it was a really, I think, effective distraction um, for folks on the right. And that's why it, it had, uh, yeah, that's why it had such, such staying power. You know, you kind of tap into this nostalgic vein and uh, mobilize that towards, towards anger and resentment and, yeah, and, and hatred of other people, which they're, again, they're, they're very, very skilled at that. So, so I see why they went that route. It's, it's, it's not a good route. It's not a healthy route. It's not responsible, but I, I think that's the, that's, that's what that was about. <laughs> it wasn't really about the books. It was about how can we use this to distract attention from the fact that the party that we support voted against helping America in any way. You know, how can we, how can we distract that? Or most of them supported a coup. You know, how, how can we, how can we not focus on that? And again, worked very well. They did, I think they did exemplary work in, um, you know, being irresponsible and, and damaging the Republic, which that's, that's what they do. So, but that's what it was about. So this decision, it wasn't made in a vacuum. There's a broader context of an even bigger movement pushing for these kinds of reckonings with history. How do you think that the decision from Dr. Seuss Enterprises might affect other book publishers or authors? Will we start seeing more decisions to revisit books that were considered okay in their time, but might not be considered the same by modern standards? I hope so, because there's lots of places you could go. You know, there's the Indian in the Cupboard series by Lynn Reed Banks. Five books in that series, still in print from HarperCollins. Why um, would be a question I have about that. Uh, there's the uh, Spanglish of the Skippy John Jones picture books, which are popular read, read alouds and don't really respect the Spanish language. Um, yeah, there, there are lots and lots of books that could be withdrawn or uh, part of a, of a broader product recall if publishers want to address the racism in their own catalogs. But another thing that publishers should do is promote diverse voices, is publish more books by writers and artists of color. You know, that's, that's even more important in some ways than simple curation. Curation's good, but elevate the voices of those whom you have not historically elevated. That will make a big difference. And that's what I hope Dr. Seuss Enterprises does next because they frame this in the context of a broader commitment. And if they're gonna make a broader commitment, you know, use, use the beginner books line to promote diverse books. And that is the series of uh, easy readers that was launched by the cat in the hat back in 1957. But you could use that like Rick Reardon uses his Rick Reardon presents imprint in which he, who, as you probably know, is the, the author of the Percy Jackson series is using that imprint entirely to highlight diverse voices, to highlight um, mythologies, um, from all sorts of different cultures, um, not just sort of the Greco-Roman ones that he focuses on. And, and that, is, that is 
brilliant, right? That's a great way to use your power to make a difference. And that's something that, that they could do at, at Seuss Enterprises and at Random House, who publishes Dr. Seuss. That would be even, that'd be even better in, in some ways. You know, let's put, let's put some better work out there, right? I'm not a parent, but I think if I were, I'd be feeling a bit overwhelmed at this, thinking that I'd have to do a lot to not only make sure that I can find and put books into my children's hands, but to make sure that they're adequate books, that there's something that they'll be able to learn from, and that they teach responsible social norms. How do I do that? Well, there's lots of resources online, and, and I assembled in response to all the attention on Seuss and racism, a long list of that on my blog, and I can drop that in the, the comments here or, or send it to you. A note to listeners, we've included that list of resources on our podcast story at cjonline.com. You know, there, are, there are lots and lots of organizations that you can turn to who are promoting diverse books from the We Need Diverse Books organization to um, The Conscious Kid, um, to um, the Brown Bookshelf, to uh, the Coretta Scott King Award winners is a way to go to. I mean, the American Library Association has awards for particular um, identity categories, um, you know, so like Lambda for um, LGBTQ, for example. I mean, those are places to go. There's publishers like like Lee and Lowe Books, which is devoted to diverse books. Like that's their whole their whole point. So there, there's 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 a lot of resources out there. I mean, if you have a good local library too, um, and you may not, but but I learn enormous amount from talking to librarians too. So I mean, th those are other resources to go to. Not all of us are parents, yet something about children's books still resonates with us. Maybe because like you said, they were a pretty big part of our upbringing. We're older now though, and we have a lot more knowledge and life experiences. How can we use those to reflect on some of these great childhood memories we have, especially when there's a chance that those experiences might not hold up to values we've picked up along the way? Well, I would say, first of all, listen to the critique and be willing to reevaluate your own assumptions about the book because you should reevaluate your own assumptions about the book. What, <laughs> I mean, the, the objects of your nostalgic longing will often disappoint you if you look closely at them. And that's okay because as we grow up, as we grow older, as we learn more, we can reflect on the culture we consumed as a child. Anything from books to films to pop music and go, oh, oh yeah, hmm. I didn't think about that at the time, but now I am thinking about it. I'm maybe gonna change my relationship to this. And that is really, that is, that is healthy. And it's, it's very unhealthy to cling on to something that uh, has sort of toxic elements in it and to cling on to that uncritically. You, you actually damage yourself if you cling on to toxic ideas. You don't become stronger, you don't become better. You're not defending, you're not defending yourself against cancel culture, right? You're actually damaging your own soul if you stand by and say, well, these racist images are okay. 
because then you're becoming complicit in damaging other people. And that actually damages you. So the healthy thing to do is to keep an open mind. And maybe you won't agree with all elements of the critique. You know, that's okay. Um, maybe you only agree with some of it. You know, some critiques are better than others. But but do take it seriously and, and do understand that uh, your own experience may limit you. Well, that's our time today. Class, let's give a big thanks to Dr. Nell for joining us, as well as Ms. Schwinn and all the great teachers and students at Whitson Elementary for letting us visit them on St. Patrick's Day. Now, don't get too excited, class. You've got an assignment, but it should be a fun one for you. Go check out your favorite kid's book and take a while to appreciate the art and story, while also maybe thinking critically about what the book might teach kids. Be sure to listen into our other podcasts, like Chilling in the State House and Music Memos. And as always, stay up to date on the latest news and in-depth coverage at cjonline.com or on our Facebook and Twitter feeds at cjonline. For the Capital Journal's Teaching Topeka, this has been Rafael Garcia. Thanks for listening.